Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. I'm Dr. Oliver Thompson. So on this podcast, I spoke with Dr. Valdi Paulsen. Valdi graduated as a physiotherapist from the University of Iceland and finished his postgraduate degree in musculoskeletal physiotherapy from Kurt University in Perth, Australia. He spent time in Norway as part of the Norwegian Manual Therapy Postgraduate Program. And he completed his PhD at Aalborg University, Denmark, where he investigated the sensory and motor aspects of SIJ pain. And he now holds an associate professor position there. He works clinically as a physiotherapist where he mainly specialises in helping people with low back and pelvic girdle pain. So in this podcast we talked about his recent article in Physical Therapy Journal titled Changing the Narrative in Diagnosis and Management of Pain in the Sacroiliac Joint Area. We spoke about the plausibility of manual testing and manual therapy to the SIJ and the sorts of beliefs that practitioners and patients hold in relation to the area. We spoke about that by paying attention to the language that patients use provides us an opportunity to obtain an interpretive portrayal of an individual's pain beliefs and pain experiences. We spoke about why words matter in relation to the SIJ region and how language provides an opportunity for us to begin to help shape new beliefs and new experiences in people with low back and SIJ pain. So I really enjoyed the podcast. Vadi was a great engaging guest. I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed speaking to him. And I'll see you on the other side. Valdi, thank you so much for, for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, well, happy to participate. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me. Um, so so maybe we could just start by you just telling telling the listeners a bit about yourself, your kind of clinical background, your academic background. Yeah, uh, so uh, I'm uh, I'm physio by background. Uh, did my undergraduate training in uh, in Iceland. Uh, finished in two thousand and three, and then I worked in clinical practice for uh, uh, five or six years, uh, and then I decided to that I needed to do something different with my career because I sort of sort of felt that I was stagnating. Especially in my understanding of how things work, and uh, um, and therefore I went to uh, Australia, where I did the post, my postgraduate training in musculoskeletal physiotherapy uh, at Curtin University okay. in Perth, and then uh, sort of when I was halfway through my studies there, I uh, the financial crisis hit, and me being from Iceland, of course, we were hit pretty hard. So I decided instead of going back to Iceland, I went to um, to Norway to do a sort of um, to to continue with my postgraduate training because in Norway they have a system where uh, people with or physiotherapists with a musculoskeletal postgraduate training they have uh, they're they're uh, considered primary consultants yeah. within the healthcare system. Yeah. Uh, but enabled in order to to get that status, you have to get that training. So I just thought it was considered to be a golden opportunity to be allowed to be a student and further develop my clinical skills, especially the clinical reasoning skills. Yeah, and and uh, and it's just, and it's just great being a student. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And Oslo is a great city, so what's not to like? Yeah. Um, so after the year there, I, I, I moved over to Denmark originally to work in clinical practice. But then uh, they, uh, I saw this PhD stilling, uh, PhD position in uh, at the at Aalborg University, which I applied for and got. And uh, I've been at the university ever since. We are now uh, an associate professor at the Department of Health Science and Technology. But I also do have a, I have. I've always sort of the reason for me getting into this was uh, my interest in understanding and I suppose helping people with musculoskeletal pain conditions. So I've always had uh, a clinic on the side or clinical work, and I still do, uh, because I think it's essential when you're working with these 
problems in research that you also have also have your fingers in it to uh, uh, because I think the two supplement each other really nicely. I, th- I think you're right. I think it's um it's so easy to say, isn't it, to for to, for us as researchers to to say um practice like this don't say that don't do that exactly um exactly. and yeah. it's come from this position of um not this ivory tower but i'm a clinician too and as a researcher and it's not always so easy isn't it that despite that the evidence saying yeah. that one should adopt yeah, this that, approach yeah. when it comes to kind of real world practice it's like well how does this really how am i really going to do this you know yeah yeah that's right and uh yeah and uh I suppose we we might might not be doing us ourselves any favors by doing this because then we're just sitting in a position where where we experience every day how complicated things are mm. and trying to uh, accommodate the complexity in research is it either requires a lot of people or that it, it requires you to acknowledge that you you only can investigate a small part of the problem you're interested in which is which is just the reality. So, yeah, so the reason I wanted to get you on the podcast is, yeah, is this is the excellent paper that you wrote on changing the narrative of sacred neck joint pain, um, dysfunction, whatever you want to call it. And it was with a kind of all-star cast of cast of you and Ben Darlow and Samantha Bunsley, all these, yeah. and Greg Lehman. So it's it's all, no, I don't think Greg's a product of the curtain treadmill of, of back pain researchers, but um, but he writes some excellent stuff. Yeah, and so exactly, yeah, and, uh, yeah. Go. No, no, no. It's uh, when when we wrote the when we started writing the paper, we decided that um, if it were, if it was only a few people, so or if it was it was only me uh, and Merv who uh, who was sort of who uh, um, who was in on the idea when we decided to write the paper, we decided that if it was only the two of us, it would be, it would always be colored by our opinions, which it of course is uh, supported by evidence. But we, we really wanted to come across as something that had both an international flavor to it, that it wasn't just us from the these two outskirts of the universe who had an opinion, but it was sort of an international sort of understanding of how we should deal with with clinical problems. And of course, finding like-minded people, uh, I, 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 I consider myself very fortunate of having got all these people on board because uh, uh, they're probably all much more clever than I am. <laughs> uh, but getting their views and opinions is, a, is an extremely... Uh, the process of writing the the paper was extremely valuable for me personally because you learn so much from interacting with people that are wiser than yourself, and uh, that's probably the thing that I the best thing I got out of the process, and uh, yeah. and really really happy with the final product. Yeah, no, it's it, 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 it's a great paper, and it's a paper that I'm kind of disseminating disseminating to students and and uh, clinical uh, colleagues and. Huh. Um, and I think, Happy to hear that. Yeah, no, it's, it's a wonderful paper. And I think um, I think the reason why I liked it is because I, I guess a lot of the things that you touched upon, such as you know, an argument against a very, a very kind of structural movement-based model for the sacroiliac joint, I mean, that's uh, that's yeah. kind of been put put, a, put or leveled at back pain and neck pain, but no one's really kind of done it around the SIJ. It's going to, the SIJ has been either just packaged up as yeah. part of the lumbar spine or it's been just, just forgotten, yeah. or, but it's... Um, Certainly, from my profession, osteopathy, the sacred neck joint is this kind of sacred. I mean, the bone is sacred, right? But the, the it's this sacred area yeah, where, where it's yeah. kind of the, the the profession has built almost an identity around the sacred neck joint. It's this kind of complex, mysterious joint that moves in a gazillion ways exactly. with with really, you know, tiny yeah. kind of movement. You've got to have these amazing skills to palpate and, and affect. So, I think it was yeah. a, it was a, it was a wonderful paper and a really important one. Uh, because yeah. so so little has been written right. around uh, in regards to that. What? So maybe if we start by saying, maybe just thinking about the paper, you kind of make a case against a movement-based model or a structural kind of movement-based model for the SIJ. What are some of the kind of key um, points of that argument? So what are the key arguments against a, a movement-related model for the sacred joint as a 
as a source of, of pain or, or dysfunction? Yeah, well, it's sort of uh, um, um, the, the argument is probably not against movement as an issue. It's much more our inability to detect movement clinically. So with the most advanced technology we have today, we can see that the, the movement available is tiny, both in healthy pe people and also in people that have uh, confirmed SIJ pain or pain originating from the sacroiliac joint. But when we then see that the, that the, that the movement in a healthy uh, body is minute, and we see that they're comparable between patients and healthy people. And even it's even comparable when you compare a painful side with a non-painful side in a patient. We sort of have a problem with uh, determining whether the movement we then, we supposedly can detect with our fingers and eyes, if it deviates from what's normal when the movement available is so minute. So we're trying to sort of first determine what's normal and what's not normal in a range, which is maybe, a, let's say, a rotation of two to four degrees, and then trying to identify clinically how much it deviates from that. It's just, it's pure guessing, yeah. uh, in my view. And, th and therefore, we're sort of, we're not arguing and we're not stating that the sacroiliac joint doesn't move. Yeah. But it doesn't move in a way that we can detect it and determine that it's moving abnormally. Yeah. Um, so, so we're sort of, it's disservice to ourselves, I think, as clinicians, because then we're, we're planting this seed of insecurity, in my view, in our minds and in our students' minds, when we're telling ourselves and our colleagues that we should be able to detect this and we should be able to measure this in the clinic. So, so, but more importantly, however, sorry. So I, I was going to say, so yeah, I think kind of you, you're you're quite right. Is that the, the case isn't that the sacroiliac joint doesn't move, but rather as no. a, a movement as they as the core kind of pillar around, or rather the, the detection of movement and the correction of movement through intervention as a core kind yeah. of pillars in treatment or assessment. That's that's your the arguments against that, right? Yeah. So so it's that you're not debating that necessarily the, exactly. the 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 objective reality that the sacroiliac joint moves but rather um placing that at the central central kind of part of the clinical reasoning around treatment and management that's the that's the error yeah that, yeah that's right that's right because because we do see that pa that patients that undergo uh, fusion yeah. of the SRJ just to lock movement they don't necessarily experience any pain relief we can see that in the prospective study done by, or then retrospective study done by Thomas Kipscourt, where they looked retrospectively at patients who got a fusion surgery 23 years prior to, to the study being conducted. And there they could see that people got better in both groups, but it was, it was mostly based on how uh, the pain severity uh, when they uh, got their treatment. So it sort of, again, feeds into this might not be so important what you get. It's who gets it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so, so, and so why do you think, I mean, it, it, to me, it seems like, it, like, like I said, for my profession, osteopathy, but I'm thinking about similar professions, whether it's chiropractic or manipulative physiotherapy, that the, that it is such a, yeah. a tightly held, um, or the beliefs are so tightly held amongst clinicians that it's, like I said, it yeah. seems to be this this um, area of the body which is discreet and mysterious, mm -hmm. and you've got to have lots of skills yeah. to kind of to to affect it and detect it. What what's different about why do you think it's it, it's so much more it's so it's so much more um, famous or or it's so much more appear to be so much more important by by clinicians? Yeah, I don't know um, <laughs> uh, because it's. Uh, um, it, it is. It's a joint which is, of course, different from other joints. Yeah. Uh, it has different joint surfaces, and the structure of the joint doesn't resemble the, for example, hinge joints we have in 
other parts of the body. Uh, and it's, uh, I don't know if it's to some extent also related to the fact that uh, pain in the area often emerges in relation to pregnancy. Yeah. And pregnancy is, of course, a stage in a woman's life where the body undergoes many different changes, both hormonal, biomechanical, uh, etc. And it is, and it might very well be that uh, our lack of understanding of how these factors interact with each other uh, uh, creates this sort of, or sort of mystifies the whole thing. But this is me guessing, of yeah, course. Yeah, 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 of course. But, 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 but we do have here, I, I, being from Iceland, I know how it is in Iceland. I, I know the same here in, in, in Denmark and the same goes for Norway. Uh, in relation to pregnancy, it's called, you, in, in, instead of calling it pelvic girdle pain in relation to pregnancy, the, the sort of word saying it's laxity of the joints causing the pain. Yeah. Yeah, it's the instability, and, the, and that's the sort of word they use to describe a pain in the pelvic girdle. Whereas, whereas, suppose what I'm trying to say is that the pelvic girdle does become looser in relation yeah. to the preparation for giving birth, mm. and it's actually a good thing that it happens. But now we've created this word "beckenlösning," yeah. which is sort of indicating that it's an abnormal state the body is in now. Uh, which is sort of uh, it's harmless because it's only words but if if we if we start to attach clinical labels to it that are, that are harmful and saying being loose equals uh, being in pain then it starts to be work against uh, whatever we try to do as a management strategy because it's not so much we can do to make the SIJ stiffer we don't really have any uh, muscles that directly can increase the compression interchangeably in the SIJ, or that's at least a very complicated uh, combination of muscles, ligaments and fascia that would need to be very elegantly coordinated, yeah. which I think is out of our realm, at least. Uh, and you also, in the paper, highlight the the mismatch between most of the 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 kind of assessment endeavor is to find stiffness or restrictions within the sacroiliac joint but most of the yeah. exercise uh, interventions are to create more stiffness or more or more yeah. or more stability if you like around the joint and there's yeah. a real kind of real kind of mismatch there isn't there yeah yeah and a, a lot of focus in i, I do know in denmark and norway uh, has been on um giving stabilizing exercises to people both with back pain and also with pelvic girdle pain, which is sort of, to some degree, maybe uh, springs out of the this sort of core stability uh, focus that has, uh, that we had in the beginning of the, uh, at the end of the, uh, uh, well, it's not 19th century. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, in the, the 1990s. 1990s, 1990s yeah. and the beginning yeah. of the 20s, where we were sort of focused on yeah, the, the delays on the delays in the core muscles, etc. And this is sort of also been uh, well, this approach has been used uh, quite a lot here in Denmark, at least on managing pelvic girdle pain as well. Yeah. But then you sort of have this, but but this must, where exercises like this must be prescribed based on the assumption that something is is loose. And then you, uh, what, what I'm what I suppose I'm trying to say is that we often jump to conclusions with without us being able to definitively measure that it, it is actually loose, and therefore yeah. we have to stiffen it. Now, and and if it doesn't fix the pain, uh, we're indirectly saying to the patients that you're really really loose, and whatever we do uh, can't stiffen it again. So we. We run out of options. Yeah, which is um, and and I think out of all the, I mean, yeah. if you if you look at you know, uh, Peter Sullivan's 
work and his messaging or whether it's Ben Darlow's and, and these guys, it's all about emphasizing the robustness and the strength of the spine. Um, and I think thinking about the sacroiliac yeah. joint, I mean, there's, the, you, there isn't really a stronger joint, is there? I mean, it's such a robust joint. Uh, it, yeah. It's so robust yeah. and it's, it's so, it, movement is so little and it's such a, a, you know, it's a force transducer or transfer. So it's just, there really is so, so if, if there ever is a joint which is, is robust and is strong yeah. and is so unlikely to kind of go anywhere, it would be the sacroiliac joint. But yet patients have often quite strong perceptions don't they or quite strong beliefs that you know, they come into clinic and they say you know my therapist has said i've got you know an unstable sij or my sij pops out or my sacrum's out or my whatever pelvis yeah, is out exactly yeah yeah exactly and it's sort of a uh, it's it's very hard to change that perception mm. because uh, just like ben darlow's work has also demonstrated that it's sort of once you have that sort of graphic description in your mind because we use in the clinic the anatomic models and we describe how things work and move and now it's moved out of place and then if patients learn to associate their pain with something that can they can visualize it's very difficult to change that unless we can get them to something else yeah um and uh, yeah, so, so so it is very very challenging once had that seed planted in their minds. Yeah, yeah. I think I think in in the paper by um, I think it was Mike Stewart and and Stephen Loftus about uh, mind you, it was the language paper and like one of the the J O S P or anyway mm. the, the phrase was something like words are like toothpaste. Um, once they kind of come out of the once toothpaste comes out of the tube, it's very hard to put back. And I think it's a bit like this that once yeah. you once you kind yeah. of frame to a patient instability yeah. fragility all that kind of stuff it's very hard to, to kind of row back from that and say oh, well actually you know it's not unstable it's just sensitive but, you know it, and it, it, it's it begins to prime yeah. patients doesn't yeah. it and it, it can be quite hard to deconstruct some of those those frameworks that they've they've that together you've constructed yeah definitely the, 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 definitely and, and you have to be you have to be either really really convincing and have a better explanation yeah uh, to be able to overrule that uh, belief that the patients have and of course your management strategy has to sort of support what you're stating because once they whatever the management strategy might be of course the patient if if he's heard your explanation and then he does whatever you prescribed and they experience that things start to uh, improve, then we might be able to change their beliefs a bit. Mm. But in reality, often, especially when working with people that have a long lasting pain condition, we can see that things don't really change over day. And very often we can see that the pain is the last thing that, that starts improving where we, where we might see changes or improvements in function way before we start seeing pain reduction yeah, yeah. so that's um, yeah so so what is what is the better explanation so so if if the more traditional explanation that patients might have had or we might have given was one of um pain associated with some movement impairment of the sij or some structural change around the sij and so patients are, are coming to clinic with holding yeah. those kind of frameworks and we're giving them those kind of frameworks What's the alternative, and what's the one you kind of highlight in in your yeah. paper? Yeah, yeah, and I think it's, of course it's 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 a bit context specific, and it's probably based on uh, why did the pain start? So, what was the when did you first uh, start experiencing the pain? Because often, if you can see that it's if it's in relation to if it's in relation to, for example, pregnancy, uh, where we often see women uh, here in the clinic who've got pelvic girdle pain in relation to their pregnancy, which then just never uh, subsided yeah. uh, postpartum, there you can, there you might be able to say that uh, while well, the changes your body underwent uh, during pregnancy might have caused an overload. So the structures that are in the pelvic girdle might have been overloaded 
but the best way for them to recover is to start loading them up progressively, despite them being a bit painful, which would be probably very similar to the management approach you would have with tendinopathies, etc. So mm. where progressive load management is the best option. Uh, we often see it also in relation to a direct impact to the sacroiliac joint. And there you can't, of course, there you have to be open to the fact that it might very well be that you just sustained an injury to the neural tissue that's in the area because mm. it's a highly innervated area, which is probably also that why it's uh, often a source of pain. Uh, and there it might be very difficult to, to come up with a management strategy other than, again, loading the the tissues to see if progressive loading can then uh, result in a reduction in sensitivity of the of the structures, mm. because it does it does seem like when we when we investigate other body areas like the uh, the conservative management of knee away, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the GLAD yeah, project, yeah, yeah. Which, which comes from a very good colleague here. In, a uh, very good colleague here in Denmark has been working on it, Søren Skål, uh, where, where they have this sort of, the program pretty much consists of patient education and then uh, exercise in groups or individually where the patients are instructed to gradually load their painful uh, joint or extremity, despite it not being having been repaired. So they still have the same degenerative joint. Uh, but here you can very often see that the patients get a significant pain reduction and an improvement in disability despite nothing being done in the in the area. And yeah. then you can sort of then you can sort of ask yourself, what is it actually that caused the change now that we know that the structures are the same? And I think a lot of it has to do with our beliefs and a reduction in fear, mm. etc. And I think that it's a it's very very important that we facilitate that in the clinic, um, regardless of what the original or the underlying driver of the pain condition is. Yeah, yeah, and 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 the the, the trouble is, is all, all, many of the the kind of movement kind of structural models around the pelvis and sacroiliac joint they they scare me when I read them. <laughs> And, yeah, and, and yeah. you know, and you can imagine yeah. if you're a patient in that's, that's either got you know, acute pain or more persistent kind of pe uh, back and pelvic pain. Um, there's yeah. they can be you know notions of instability and joint you know, sacral upslips or downslips or you know pelvic torsions. Yeah. I mean, these are these are potentially quite quite kind of threatening threatening kind of words and and, and ideas. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. This sort of just. Um... But but by by introducing this into the patient's vocabulary, it it, it also makes them um, the role of self management becomes automatically reduced or put into the background because it's very little a patient can do mm. about a joint slipping out of place because what are we going how are we going to self manage that yeah and 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 I think you're quite right and so they look to us as clinicians and it becomes this this kind of passive therapy, yeah. can you put my pelvis back? Or the last therapist I saw, yeah. you know, they did this thing and they, they looked to you to kind of put this thing back in place. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I think we, well, through the decades, and this is what I learned when I did my undergraduate training. Uh, and a lot of us did, uh, I think this applies for almost all healthcare professionals that were put into the world or after we do after we graduated then we're there to to uh we're the solution for people's pain conditions so we often have this idea that uh, recovery cannot happen unless we're there but i think that many times especially with communication that's threatening etc we're putting ourselves in the way of recovery so instead of just facilitating whatever self so healthy self-management strategies, we often come up with maybe complicated explanatory models and then equally complicated exercises to reach the goal. And it, like we're, we're just working with normal people that uh, don't have the same insight into how the body works. So we're trying to get 
somebody who's a novice of the human body to start doing something that's fairly complicated. Yeah, it's probably probably similar to if I was put into a into a uh, workshop with a car mechanic, and I only got the instructions on how to uh, change the motor in my car. I wouldn't have a clue, and yeah. I would be unsecure, and I I would most definitely ruin something. So, so given that, so how, what kind of strategies can clinicians adopt to communicate sacred at joint? So, I guess that the the challenges is is meeting patients' desire for a kind of legitimate diagnosis that they want to kind of know what's going on. Why am I in pain? Yeah, you know what's causing this pain. Yeah. What's going on with my bones and my joints? Um, so they kind of yeah. they 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 desire that. Um, so we to some extent we've got to meet some of that, but then at the same time we don't slip into this into this um, position of providing nasibic language or threatening language or stuff which isn't true. So what's what what's what's a reasonable way to de- to describe with patients or to patients the sacred joint yeah. pain that they're feeling, perhaps? Yeah, well, it's a it's a difficult question, but I suppose it's sort of. Uh, and I think this this is where the this sort of um, I, th- I think approaching it from a s- sort of so managing people and ex- using uh, explanatory models that fit into the biopsychosocial model is always going to be helpful. But I think uh, throughout the last sort of decade within uh, healthcare, we've sort of started to avoid including uh, or there's this push for not including a description of how the the human body works Mm. into our explanatory models because we're very aware of it might be threatening. Uh, So the anatomical models, etc. I know I'm at least very acutely aware of it in my clinical practice that I probably shouldn't use the the model of the spine to explain how things work because it puts things into it might plant a seed but then again you also have to acknowledge that pain can easily be derived from the anatomical structures that we have an acute discus prolapse is an anatomical phenomenon where something has gone wrong Um, and but, but in but in non-specific pain conditions like SIJ pain often is, uh, telling the patient that they have a non-specific pain condition uh, doesn't really tell them anything mm. because we're essentially just telling them that they have back pain or SIJ pain uh, without telling them why. Um, so, so I suppose um, explaining how using or um, informing them of how strong and robust the, the structure really is. Mm. And of course, after we've done all testing and making sure that nothing is going to happen or uh, uh, nothing's going to be damaged if we start loading the structures, yeah. developing a plan where we gradually induce load in the, in the area and telling them that this is safe. I, I, I would, I would try and use that sort of an approach explaining to them explaining the patient how how pain science works is a useful tool but this of course is contingent upon us understanding how the pain system works and knowing about tissue sensitivity knowing how things can become overused and that the nerves can start uh or the interpretation of neural signals can be magnified, etc. I think that's it's it's a valuable tool to have in your toolbox. Yeah. But communicating neuroscience in an understandable, non-threatening manner is an exercise which I think is healthy for all healthcare professionals. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think coming back to your your use of the anatomic model, I think it can be used for good or bad, can't you? So you can. You can either yeah. get get these these flexi spines, and you can say, look, you know, look at look at the joints and what's going on here with your pelvis that it's twisted and this has moved here, or I think you can use yeah. it as a as a kind of means for good, where you say, look how you know strong these bones are, and look how strong the kind of 
the yeah. virtual yeah uh, the, the kind of the structures are and that you know that you can you could so i guess you could frame that that any way you like and i think you know the the, the kind of the reality is that patients you know the sacred joint does exist i mean it's an objective fact it's not some you know subjective construction exactly. pa- patients yeah. patients have spines and they they have pelvises and these things exist so i think i think how you how you use those things um or, or how you frame them with with language and, and kind of context that will, will determine their kind of value or, or their threatening nature to patients because using such an approach and demonstrating to them how how strong the body is how how unique the construction is is not something that of course it will help us here and now uh, in terms of uh, reducing their pain and improving their function but it also gives them an understanding they can use for the rest of their lives because for me a successful management strategy of course inevitably includes the it will mean that the patient will not have a similar need for uh, visiting you because we, we want them to be able to self-manage their pain condition and that's Understanding how the body works and how we're built is is a is an important part of that. I think. Yeah. And in terms of interventions, and whether it's we could start, we could start maybe with exercise, but I think moving on to manual therapy. How? So we we've got ways to describe the experience of pain that patients might have from around the sacroiliac joint, and we could emphasize sensitivity. We could emphasize kind of loading. Um, but in terms of how we describe that, for example, manual therapy, how how we how might we describe those those techniques? Because most of their techniques, as they're taught, are around movement and moving the sacroiliac sacred joint in certain ways to stretch or, you know, um, kind of move the move the bones in certain in very specific directions. Yeah, yeah. What are we doing when we're kind of trying to play around with the sacroiliac joint yeah. using manual therapy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think, uh, and a lot of the, I suppose, uh, critiques or comments uh, I've got on uh, on our article has been has come from uh, people that very often use manual therapy uh, techniques on patients with SIJ pain, where they say, "Well, it seems to work for my patients, um, so therefore I'm going to continue doing that, and it must mean that then I'm that moving the joint is good." Uh, and I'm not going to argue against that, uh, and I'm not by no means trying to say that manual therapy isn't good or should be contraindicated. Uh, but it's probably the uh, so, so 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 it's very well known that uh, in the SIJ, like in the back and elbow pain, shoulder pain, neck pain, that passively moving a joint results in a in a transient reduction in pain and pain sensitivity and it's related and it's been related to a range of uh, chemical changes or neurobiological changes both in the milieu of the uh, of the joint being moved but also at the dorsal horn of the spine and also in supraspinal processes which will inevitably also include the the placebo effect so but so, so passively moving the joint is fine uh, as long as we don't think that we're pushing something back or into place or doing something, because studies that have uh, investigated before and after, for example, joint positioning of the SIJ or the low back shows that it, the, the anatomic position is exactly the same, even though it might feel better. And we can see this also when we crack our fingers. Nothing really, the finger joints are still in the same uh, position. But some people experience relief from it, and that's absolutely fine. But associating that then with something being now uh, put into a better or more favorable position, that's, I think that's the, that's where we got it wrong. Uh, and uh, I, I'm just trying. Yeah. I'm just trying to remember the study. I think many years ago now. I think it was inspired by some Scandinavian colleagues of yours. Who who looked at who, who yeah. used kind of radiopaque markers around the, the pelvic bones? Um, they've got a, they've got the patients yeah. or the participants to do. I think therapists to, to go through a series of sacroiliac joint tests. Um, I guess they took a, a picture of these of these pelvises, did a treatment, and then got the clinicians to reassess them. And there was just a real mismatch that 
there was there was no change in in position of the vertebra, but certainly the therapist thought that there was some some change to some you know, negative test essentially that, 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 that there was a change in the clinical test but nothing on on the imaging yeah 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 I, I think it's very difficult to see what is it actually that happens they've done some very basic studies looking into what happens where you when you passively perform a a, a manipulation or a cavitation in the mm. joint where you can see the the gas bubbles forming and then uh, bursting, etc. Uh, why it, it it results in this uh, momentary reduction in, for example, muscle activity that's been shown. Uh, there's this re- reflex loop that seems to uh, be inhibited, resulting in less motor activity in and around the the mobilized joint, yeah. which might be part of the. Uh, uh, explanation, but I think I think a lot of a lot of the people that took the messaging from the paper badly uh, felt that we were saying uh, stop using manipulation because they felt that this contradicted their experience of it actually working. This is not at all what we're trying to uh, get across. We just wanted to say that. The way we frame, uh, or the the way we explain the intention of the treatment modality we use, and then the perhaps effect thereof, should not be based on something being moved in and yeah. out of position, but rather just being honest and saying, well, passive movement for joint can help uh, uh, with pain. Yeah. And I think then we're not overstating or overselling anything, and then we're being honest, and then it we're actually being, then we're then we're in line with uh, what the evidence tells us. And and I guess does it? And a lot of people would just like that. Yeah, and and does it does it matter? I mean, it doesn't really matter whether it's moving or not, or how it's moving. In a way, I mean, to have that in your mind when you're performing the the technique. It's kind of yeah. Uh, it, it, it's kind of neither here nor, here nor there to some extent. Yeah, exactly. And if we and if we look at it, we uh, we try to be as specific as we can when we're passively moving a joint. But the fact of the matter is, the force we're generating through our hands has to go through layers of skin, fascia, fat, etc. Which means that the that the sort of Accumul- the, the vector of force that we're actually applying is usually going to just be in the same direction. Yeah. So if we apply the force like obliquely or straight down or whatever, it's probably going to result in the same. Yeah. Just have to make sure that we're just not using too much force to hurt the patients, I suppose. And and so just just moving through the paper, you've got a really nice, um, I, and I can see Samantha Bunsley's contribution so you had the kind of the csm the the uh what am i saying change uh making sense uh, making one, sense of pay, so so common sense model that's of, it yeah uh, that's right the common, the common sense, sense model. model yeah so think yeah. so that and you can you had some really nice um essentially you, you applied the model to the sacroiliac joint and and some ways to kind of frame uh, the beliefs across the five domains that it was identity cause consequence timeline curability control so do you want to say something yeah. about that? Because I think the, the, that model is a really helpful model for clinicians and, and maybe just say about say something about it in regards to the sacroiliac joint. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think uh, using this model uh, both in as part of the uh, initial assessment to try to get an idea of what the patient's think what the patient uh, thinks about their pain condition because if they come in to you with a belief that something is sitting uh, in a wrong position or something is unstable or it's a weakness or something these factors can and should uh, uh, definitely be addressed in in of course in the subjective assessment but also in the intervention whatever the intervention will then consist of uh, if we feel like it doesn't really, uh, if it's inconsistent with what we think is uh, a more plausible explanation, but but 
we also have to give, give them, uh, so this is how patients might make sense of the pain and, and we bring us, bring up some examples. Yeah. Uh, and instead of telling them, this is not the case, we have to provide them with an explanation, which is more plausible. But in some cases, it, it might also be less specific because if we take the first, uh, the first, which is on identity, uh, identity beliefs, describing uh, and prognostic labels, instead of saying I have an unstable pelvis, we would end up saying just I have a sore pelvis. Doesn't really tell you why the pelvis is uh, sore. So it becomes a bit more nonspecific. But it's sort of, and then this will feed into the sort of the the remaining steps of the models where they're where we're talking about what what are the consequences of when we start loading the pelvis because if you sit there thinking if i load it too much or if i walk stairs or exit a car without collecting my uh, knees first my pelvis will go out of place this is definitely something that we have to address both with a good and sound anatomic explanation of it and then we have to sort of our management strategy has to support sort of uh, or has to be in line with uh, an explanatory model that uh, states that nothing goes out of place and then they have to experience that. So I think that this common sense model is is an excellent tool to work with in SIJ pain in any musculoskeletal pain condition for that matter. Because it sort of helps us understand where the patient is at in their way of understanding how their body works and gives us an excellent opportunity to try and correct that. Yeah, I think it's, I I think I'm a real fan of the model and it's, um, it's kind of taken the, the fear avoidance model a step further or a step to the side or, or just there's more kind of meat and, and, and there's more, um, opportunity and I guess guidance for, for therapists to begin to, to explore some yeah. of those beliefs and identify them and, and to kind of address them as yeah. you go along. Yeah. And it becomes patient specific. You, 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 you get, you, you get the patient's beliefs, not a, not a generic sort of idea of what do you think happens in the pelvis when it hurts? It's, 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 it's focused around what do you think is happening in your pelvis? And many people have no idea. It just hurts, yeah. but very often they sort of, they have a fear of something being out of place or damaged or hurt or so it's a very nice opportunity to sort of get structure in your, in your subjective and objective uh, assessment. And and what do you think about doing, asking some of the, so when I spoke to Ben Dahler, we had a conversation about kind of what role some of the, some of that subjective history, whether it occurs at the beginning of the session and then you move on to the the, the the kind of manual physical assessment and then intervention. What are your thoughts about having some of those, some of those questions or all those conversations during the intervention or during the manual therapy? Or is there? A, do you see them? What do you think? Yeah. Well, well I think I think uh, I think it's it might reinforce. Uh, if we're talking, for example, about a patient that fears that something is unstable or something slips out of place, adding a, sort of as we go along, let's say we're then testing functions like single leg stance or single leg squat, uh, telling the patient, look, if something was really, really unstable, it would slip out of place where you're doing this because now you're pretty much loading this one joint with all of your body weight and yeah. now you're doing a squat and you're able to do it uh, quite easily if that's the case. Then sort of going back to this sort of sort of constantly reminding the patients that you thought it was this, but if this was the case, then you probably wouldn't be able to do this. Yeah. Uh, so instead of us just telling them, no, this is not the case, it's not unstable, getting them to realize that they're actually capable of doing a lot of things, uh, not only potentially and probably more in the, in the, in the long run will give them more faith and uh, uh, trust in their own body, but it also reinforces the messaging we want them to go home with and that it is a robust structure and it needs to be loaded and needs to be exercised and 
Yeah. I, I, I completely agree. And I think it's kind of almost like, you know, the uh, Peter Sullivan stuff when you look to, to kind of check patients' beliefs before they perform a movement or go through some kind of task and try and confirm some of those beliefs. But I guess that, that by asking patients what they're experiencing yeah. while, while they're going through movements or while you're kind of loading, you know, you know palpating or you know, pushing down on their sacrum or whatever might be done, you get that also contributes yeah. To, yeah. to an insight into how they're thinking about it. They're, if they're saying, oh, you know, don't push on there, I'm, I'm sure it's going to go, or it just it feels yeah. really vulnerable. It just builds a picture, doesn't it, yeah. of, of how they're, they're framing things. Exactly, exactly. And it, give, and it gives us so much insight into the person we're dealing with, because at the end of the day, it's, it's a patient-centered approach, which essentially is something that we do always when we're in the clinic or should be doing but it's sort of like they're there because they have pain but they're often there because they wouldn't be there if they had pain but they had complete control over the pain Mm. because then they would probably just self-manage we don't see everybody that get acute back pain but we see people that get a sprain in the back and then they come either because it doesn't go away or they're concerned that there might be consequences of them doing something and they just get where they want to know, well, how, how should I behave? Yeah. And here, I think we should be very, uh, like the, uh, the power we have is enormous. And I think it's really important, as I said before, that we don't then get in the way of the patient recovering, but we should rather try and figure out what is it, what's the least I can do to optimize recovery. Uh, and I think as as I think exactly the same. You know, it's it's one thing having these theories and models around you know dysfunctions or movement dysfunctions of the pelvis. If they become an obstacle, yeah. if they become an obstacle to the patient improving or to being more empowered or more confident, then they then they are a problem. And it's they're not. It's not the case that they're necessary. Just yeah. they're harmless. The fact that if themselves they become the obstacle to to the patient. Uh, being Definitely. Then, Definitely. They, then they should be dropped my last kind of kind of question yeah. is i'm looking at the time and so you in terms of teaching kind of manual therapy and when this is the big kind of a thorny issue isn't it so we kind of recognize that yeah. if manual therapy if or if yeah assessment manual assessment of the sacred joint is non-specific the manual therapy interventions yeah. are non-specific yeah. what are we teaching i mean i i kind of work in a manual therapy kind of institution yeah. fortunately i don't have to yeah. teach manual therapy but what should <laughs> what should educators be doing i mean teach this is the real thing is it is it what one view is that students have to go through this kind of process of learning specific palpation and movement assessments because and then they can drop yeah. all drop all of that when they when they you know they graduate and take a much more non-specific approach much like most of us have or is it the case that they should be taught non yeah. non-specificity from day one but the argument then is that they never really develop their sense of palpation, their kind of sense of being able to be having good kind of handling skills. Yeah. So what's, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, it, it is, a, it is a, it's an excellent point. And uh, uh, I've, I've actually been involved in setting up a, a two-year master's uh, uh, program at Albrook University in musculoskeletal physiotherapy. And there we, uh, it was a very conscious decision to include uh, modules focusing on manual therapy skills, not because we thought it was necessarily essential for them to uh, be able to treat or manage patients, but it's because the fact, because um, uh, for one, uh, uh, as a, it has a, it has a historic uh, background, of course, We've done this for decades, and therefore knowing um, how we can specifically assess the neck or the back or the knee, for for that matter, is a valuable tool because it helps us. It it forces us to understand how uh, the structures move, because the specifics of motion palpations derive from an understanding of which directions do the facet joints move into? And we can't really know that unless we know the anatomy. So, 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 so we become very, very specific. Uh, but in, 
the theoretical background we provide with these classes, we are we are very open and we highlight the fact that we cannot really reliably identify small movements in the spine or wherever. Uh, but there are still some very useful uh, parts of uh, applying and using such assessment techniques, uh, which relate then to how uh, touching and moving passively can directly be input into the uh, uh, how the sensitivity of the nervous system is. Mm. And another really, really important factor, I think, which is often forgotten in this debate about hands-on or hands-off, is the fact that uh, human touch is extremely powerful. So, and being able to do something that uh, uh, is as specific as possible uh, gives us a sense of sort of if we won't put the hands on our, our on our patients, we don't really qualitatively have a sense of how rigid is it anyway. Mm. We can't really say it on uh, a joint level. Then we can't really say that this joint is moving more or less than the, the adjacent joints. But it gives us a sense of feeling how how apprehensive is the patient to passive movement? Is it different from left to right? And that's probably as specific as we can get. But we must not forget also the impact it probably has on the patients as well, because feeling that you are being assessed thoroughly and in a specific manner, which is relevant for their pain condition, will inevitably increase their faith in us as healthcare professionals, and then probably uh, increase their faith in our explanations to them afterwards. But here it's just extremely important that our explanatory models are based on something that uh, uh, is accurate uh, without going into specifics about joint movements, which we can't really reliably uh, detect. So, so it is a really, really delicate yeah. balance. It's a fine tightrope, isn't it? And particularly when you know, students, undergraduates in their you know, early first year, second year, <clears throat> when you, yeah, it's easy to make them feel disheartened or, you know, why have I chosen this career? Yeah. I'm getting kind of mixed messages. Excuse <clears throat> me. Mixed yeah. messages from my from the different educators, and I'm being I'm being taught this kind of theoretical model, or being or expected to to develop these skills. But then in the next class, or later on in the course, or um, I'm t- we're told that these are non-specific, and it's and it's so it's, it's, it's a real it's a real tension. Because I would agree with you, there is something about there is kind of good manual therapy, or feeling or being touched in a way which is <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> there's there's being touched in a way which is kind of skilled and subtle and competent and then there's kind of bad manual therapy which is or when i say bad it, the, the experience on the part of the patient is bad that it's clumsy it's heavy-handed yeah. there's no there's no kind of respect for, yeah. for for their for their bodies or, or how it moves so it's a it's a very it's a very tricky kind of balancing act yeah yeah and i suppose we're sort of uh uh as educators we're sort of, uh, I wouldn't say forced, but there are some expectations within the healthcare sector uh, and in the uh, getting recognitions as uh, for your postgraduate training or your undergraduate training for that matter. Here it's explicitly stated what a person who has a manual therapy degree, what is that person supposed to know and manual handling skills is one part of that mm. so it's sort of difficult for us as educators saying um well we shouldn't teach that because it it's not it's not useful for clinical practice whereas we have uh, an economical model that states that if you don't have these competencies you you don't have you don't have the right qualifications 
so, it, so, and I do know the last iPhone conference in Glasgow, this was a heavy debate on whether uh, we should continue uh, being manual therapists or should we abandon manual therapy <clears throat> and uh, use exercise and explanation to our, our patients. And I think both models have their shortcomings. And of, and of course, uh, I would say, well, it should be a combination of, of both approaches because uh, what we do is valuable as we've gone through, but what we say is equally or even more valuable. But I, I sort of don't think that that uh, the one can survive without the other, without it having, uh, without just acknowledging that we're just missing out quite a bit. Uh, and and I think often the in the debate on what should the intervention then consist of, exercise is is often mentioned and i think of course it should be included in the management strategy but here it's often sort of uh, often we have this feeling that they then have to go out and be athletes our patients yeah. but exercise is is just it can easily consist of uh, very simple tasks like how do you stand up from a chair what do you focus on when you walk up the stairs? When you exit the car, what should you try to do? And then you sort of implement it into the patients every day. Because doing exercise can easily be a, a, a big hurdle for people yeah. you know, that have a lot of pain. So, um, And, and, and I yeah. think it's all about kind of framing, framing the exercise or framing the intervention. What, um, is there anything else you want to kind of touch on? Anything you want to kind of emphasize from the paper? Uh, yeah, probably not so much from the paper, but it's uh, one thing that I want to emphasize from the sort of discussions that have uh, spun out in relation to the paper in many forums uh, is the fact that uh, health, some healthcare professionals feel like we're stating that there is then no such thing as SIJ pain, that they have this feeling that because we can't detect it and we can't diagnose it, we're sort of indirectly stating that SHA pain is just an imagination. It most definitely is not. And it is, it's quite prevalent, especially in pregnant and, uh, women and, and postpartum uh, as well. And therefore, we also wanted to write the article because it is, it is something that affects a lot of people. And it seems like we're just not very good at managing it because and it might related, be related to uh, uh, how we frame our explanatory models. Uh, because the, we have some excellent tools to use in the clinic, the pain provocation tests described by uh, Laslett and, and, and other uh, researchers as well. They're excellent tools to help us sort of guide us into, so where is this likely source of symptoms? But it just doesn't tell us why the pain's there. It just yeah. tells us it, it it it's likely coming from the area. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so, yeah. I think it, 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 as you say, it's clearly a source of nociception, but but that doesn't yeah. tell you everything about the experience of that patient's going through. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, yeah. So, so you you got some you got some hate mail, did you, from your paper? No, not really. <laughs> no. Well, that was. One of the things that surprised me, so on social media, so it's more on this sort of social media here in Denmark, actually. Okay. But in, in on Twitter, etc., you can see that uh, it's very surprising that it's almost only positive mm. uh, feedback and uh, uh, responses we're getting. But the fact of the matter is, we do know that there are a lot of people that just don't buy into this. Yeah. And the silence from these partners is sort of, it's very difficult to know what to make of it. Because yeah. I do know that manual assessment of the SIJ is still taught at undergraduate and postgraduate level in many places. Yeah. Uh, and I do hope that people don't feel like we're uh, sort of... Uh, uh, 
pointing fingers at them yeah. because like this is the understanding we had and now it's time to move on and we were sort of hoping that this paper could be part of uh, that development so so the radio silence mm-hmm. from the opponents of the paper is uh, it's interesting well um, i think i think i think partly so the discussion has been very sort of unidirectional yeah i think um see from my point of view and I, so i thought it was a really balanced paper and i, I didn't I, I took no there was no sense that you were criticizing or being no. um, derogatory to, to any kind of corners of, of kind of manual or MSK therapy. I thought, it re- I yeah. think the paper sought to, to, to clearly address some of the, the, the problems with the, with the, with the traditional models and, yeah. and provide, uh, provide, provide an alternative. And maybe the silence from the opponents of, of the, the paper, if you like, that's either that they're still just digesting this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they, or there aren't particularly strong arguments against it. I mean, it, it was it was a kind of it was a it was a well argued position, and and the, you know, yeah. I guess the, the silence might be telling in itself. Yeah, I'm glad you feel that because yeah, 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 it might be. I hope so. Um, Valdi, thank you so much for for taking part. Um, brilliant. Thank you so much. Absolute pleasure. Anytime. Brilliant. Cheers, Valdi. Stay well. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.